A few years ago, I was teaching a discovery class. It's a class that we have here at The Crossing. We've been doing it for like 22 years on one of our biggest core beliefs. People who want to become members go through that class. And a few years ago, I was teaching it, and the first one is on why I believe the Bible is a credible witness for the Christian narrative, a credible witness of reality. And for whatever reason, that night, I went on a particular rant on how the secular narrative and the doubts it has toward the Bible don't really have a lot of uh, foundation and kind of went into whole why the Bible is you know, something we can trust as a credible witness. And when I was done, I saw a student, a grad student in the back, and uh, he was just standing there and he was obviously waiting to talk to me. And so I eventually made my way and I went up to him and he had tears in his eyes. And I, I, I was, you know, you never know if you've offended somebody or something. And I was kind of like trying to navigate the turf and he said, you know, I was on my way out the door of Christianity. I was out, almost out the door of my faith. He's a PhD student in the natural sciences, and he'd just been getting a lot of reasons to doubt Christianity, to doubt the Christian narrative. And he came to the discovery class because his girlfriend goes to this church, and she wanted him to at least take the class. And so he did, and he just... was. Something that sort of turned on a light. Now, he and I got together several times after that, but he ended up marrying his girlfriend. Uh, she's a physician here in Columbia. He's got a job uh, in the natural sciences that he got his PhD in. They are raising their family in this church as members of this church. And, you know, it's one of those things where he almost had chucked it. He almost got to the point where he couldn't believe the Christian narrative. It wasn't plausible to him anymore. You know, we're surrounded in our culture by that. We're surrounded by constant doubts about the Christian narrative. And you know, you have to deal honestly with doubts. Unlike other things that, you know, other thoughts that you don't want in your head, uh, you know, impure thoughts, greedy thoughts, things like that. Doubts are not like that. Doubts are not something you should say, you know, be gone or something. They're not something that you should ignore. Doubts are something that you've got to think through. And you have to think them through with intellectual honesty. I, at least for me, I know I don't, I don't want to believe something that's not true. I don't want to stick my head in the sand and say, no, 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 don't confront me. I want to just believe what I believe. That's not how I'm wired. My guess is that's not how most of you are wired either. So you have to hit doubts head on. When you're, when you're reading in, you know, you can't really watch anything on TV or, or, or read something in the media, or especially on social media, without sort of this new kind of narrative, this new kind of story that you're seeing, it's called the deconversion story. The deconversion story usually has certain elements that are true, that somebody writes something, maybe an article or a blog, or maybe it's a character in a show, but that is somebody who was raised in a more conservative Christian home, and then they grew up and, and went to college or became adults and they, they got confronted with a reality they had not been confronted with before. And in their mind, they got, you know, they had to deal with, the, in their mind, the lack of scientific proof for the Christian narrative, uh, the biblical story, the biblical narrative. Uh, they had to deal with the reality of evil and suffering in a world that's supposedly governed by a God who is all good and all powerful. How, how do you, how, they couldn't make sense of that. They had to deal with, uh, in their, at least their mind, the reality of bigotry and ignorance among many Christians. 
And they had to deal with the discovery that when they made non-believer friends, they were thoughtful and they were kind and they cared about people and they cared about injustice and they cared about equality more than many Christians that they knew. And it just sort of, they just sort of came to the conclusion eventually. It's kind of how all the stories go. They came to the conclusion that you don't really need God. You don't need belief in God to live a good life. They got proof all around them with their friends and you don't need to have belief in God to build a good society. In fact, maybe, maybe religion, maybe particularly Christianity, is sort of a cog in the wheel of that, that it might actually be a hindrance to living a good life and building a good society. The background in all of these narratives is this eventual conclusion uh, that a secular culture believes what can be shown from scientific evidence and reason and that Christianity believes based upon a kind of blind faith. You have to have a blind faith today with all the things we know now. You sort of have to have an ignorance of science and you have to have an ignorance of history and you have to have just basically an ignorance of logical thought. Now, when I say secular culture, let me just be clear because in some sense, secular is a good word. So there's, Tim Keller talks about this in his book, Making Sense of God. There's sort of three ways we use secular today. The first one is a secular state, this political, that separation of religion and the state. And we, you know, that's a good thing we, we, I don't want. Uh, religion to control the state, and I don't want the state to control religion. I don't want a state government that favors any kind of faith. That's never been good for either the state or religion when those two get in control or try to control one another. And, and so that's not what we want. I want to live in a culture, I want to live in a government that doesn't do that. I'm really thankful for the American Constitution that, 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 that addresses that. And, and also, you know, when it comes to faith, it can't be something that's coerced by government. It can't be something that's pressured by society. Real faith has to be something that's freely chosen. Real worship, worship of God has to be something you're doing not to please anybody, but, but God. It has to be genuine. So we don't, a secular society, in my opinion, is a good thing. I want to live in a secular society. But a second way that term is used is a secular person. I have a friend who calls himself a secular Jew. A secular person is somebody who doesn't believe in God and they don't go beyond the material world as any kind of a realm of belief. They just believe in what is evidently gonna be shown by science and what it, the, everything, all reality is the material world. There's no metaphysical world. There's no world but beyond the material. There's no supernatural world. That's a secular person. The third way is what I've already started using it, and I'm going to use it for most of the sermon, is the idea of a secular culture. A secular culture is what makes Christianity seem so implausible. Not because of necessarily arguments as much as by just assertions that come as sort of a, a, a assertions through a cultural pressure and intimidation that's absorbed in the stories and the, and the themes in entertainment and the story and themes in social media and other media, that that just sort of, not by argument, but just sort of by all the intimidation, by the pressure and by just absorbing it, it just more and more makes Christianity more and more implausible. We're gonna start a sermon series 
here called Making Sense of God. Now, I'll be honest, we're basing it mostly on the book by Tim Keller, Making Sense of God. Now, there'll be other things too. But it's really a good book. If you kind of want to read along with us, feel free to do that. I'm kind of talking about chapters one and two today. But we want to deal with the doubts. We want to deal with it head on. Now, we've preached sermons here on other things that relate to greed and, and you know, other kinds of things when it comes to sexuality and other things. But have we ever really dealt directly with doubts as a sermon series? Well, today we want to start to do that. And we want to do it over the period of the next seven weeks after today. Today, I want to tackle the issue, this sort of this claim by our secular culture the claim that the beliefs of a secular culture are based on science and reason, but the Christian beliefs basically are based on a sort of a, you have to have a leap of faith. And I'm going to suggest, I don't know where you are, lots of people in this room, so I don't want to really just directly start confronting anybody, but I, I want to suggest that the claim that, somebody, that the secular culture bases their beliefs on science and reason, actually, they don't. Because nobody can base their core beliefs purely just on scientific evidence. It can't be done. A good example of that would be a book by a guy named Paul Kalanithi. Paul Kalanithi was a neurosurgeon at Stanford University. And he was going about his career in his mid-30s and discovered he had stage four lung cancer. He started writing a book. He ended up dying of that stage four lung cancer. But in the process of his dying days, he was writing a book. He almost finished it before he died. Uh, and, and basically, it was kind of put together after he died. So it didn't quite have total things that maybe everything he wanted to say, but it had a lot of what he wanted to say. So much so that it became a number one bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list. And it became the New York Times best book of the year in 2015, not just the New York Times, but all kinds of other, the Washington Post, NPR. It, it was one of these books that just sort of, it's one of these books that was talking about the reality of dying, but also talking about what makes life meaningful. And so I read the book and I found it really interesting. And it was a certain kind of section in the book that really caught my interest that I marked. And I want to look at it today. Actually, Tim Keller also looks at it in his book, but he says, this is what Paul Kalanithi says. He says, during my sojourn in ironclad atheism, the primary arsenal leveled against Christianity had been its failure on empirical grounds. In other words, scientific evidence. Surely enlightened reason offered a more coherent cosmos. The problem, however, eventually became evident. To make science the arbiter of metaphysics, that's what goes beyond the material world, is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, meaning. To consider a world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. So he goes on and concludes this. Science may provide the most useful way to organize empirical, reproducible data, but its power to do so is predicated. In other words, you gotta keep this in mind first. It's predicated on its inability to grasp the most central aspects of human life. Hope, fear, love, hate, beauty, envy, honor, weakness, striving, suffering, virtue. What Paul Kalanithi is saying here is that, 
look, it, 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 the natural sciences are great when it comes to understanding reproducible data that's empirical, but most of the central aspects of life are not that. Most of the things that are just self-evidently true to life are not that. They can't even be measured by that. They can't even come as evidence from that. Things like love and things like virtue and things like meaning. We might even say to, that the idea of love is better than hate or the idea of, of justice is better than injustice, that, that helping the less powerful instead of oppressing them is what we ought to do, that individual rights are real. None of that can come, he says, from purely scientific evidence and reasoning. That's not what it's for. So we already know, he discovered, even though he was an atheist, he came to the point where he says, the Christian narrative makes a lot more sense. Because the things that I know self-evidently to be true, can't, there's no basis for that here. The basis for it comes from somewhere else, namely to him, the Bible. Now here's the thing. For somebody to claim they only base their beliefs on scientific evidence and reason but then to turn around and believe something that's not according to the current, let's say, secular culture scientific theory that the universe popped into existence from nothing and just by chance developed the way it is where there's life on earth and through a process, again, just merely by itself without God, of just a material process of chance through survival of the fittest, the strong overpowering the weak, eventually we have the human society that we have now to believe that is the only narrative of reality and then turn around and, they, and say, therefore, let's love one another. Therefore, let's help the weak. Therefore, let's have individual rights, human rights. He says it's to take a giant leap of faith. They have to take the leap of faith because these things are self-evidently true even though there's no basis for it in purely naturalistic scientific evidence. It's interesting because you have to ask the question, where did the, the idea of human rights come from? Did it just sort of always be part of the human condition? Read any historian and they'll tell you no. I mean, just watch TV and all these shows about Vikings or Genghis Khan or colonialism or the Nazis or whatever. It's always been the strong overpowering the weak. That's been the narrative of history. And that's been the, if you want to have purely a naturalistic view of evolution, that's the narrative of evolution. So where does the idea come from? And there's a book called A Brief History of, of Thought written by a guy named Luke Ferry. He's a philosophy historian. And he agrees with almost every historian I've read on, the, on the, the world from Rome until now. And he says that in pagan thought at the time of, of before Christianity, nowhere do you see anything that has any kind of concept of human equality, individual rights. You don't see that anywhere. Even in the Greco-Roman world where before they became an empire, they had a democracy. That democracy was still based upon a real strong racism and ethnic pride that there are certain people born to rule and everybody else is born to follow as a slave. And he says this, he says in his book, uh, A Brief History of Thought, he writes, but in direct contradiction to all thought beforehand, even the best of Greco-Roman culture, in direct contradiction, Christianity was to introduce, it was the first, to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical. Everybody's the same. That men were equal 
in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time, and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. Now, this is guy, as far as I know, not a believer. He's just saying, look, if you look at just the history of thought, history of philosophy, unique to the scene was when Christianity said all people are created equal. And that had, it took centuries, but it eventually had a result of supplanting all the pagan worldviews of the strong overcoming the weak instead of the weak having justice and individual rights. And that happened by Christianity. That happened as it became something over the centuries that eventually became something assumed to be true. Now, our, 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 uh, cultural, our secular culture still holds to most of those ideals. It's in a lot of people's verbiage. Human rights, individual rights, equality, helping the oppressed instead of oppressing the weak. This is all what we still believe, even though we've become more and more a secular culture. And, and I think the reason why is because it's a kind of borrowed credit card from an earlier age. There's a sort of assumption that we still value these things. But as our culture becomes more and more untethered to the Christianity that created it and becomes more based instead on just what we can know from scientific evidence and reason, it's going to become less and less a basis for human rights and equality and human dignity because the Christian narrative was the basis for it. And what you're going to have, I think, is, well, I think kind of this idea of instead of having a basis for right and wrong and human rights, it kind of becomes following where the cultural power shifts. And that becomes our basis for right and wrong. That becomes our basis for human rights and the limitations of it. When I think of that, I think of this gif I saw one time of army ants. I didn't know this, but army ants are blind. And the only way they go is by following the pheromones of the butt in front of them. And so that if, if, if they end up going badly into a circle, they can go into a circle and keep going into a circle until they just absolutely die of exhaustion. In the middle, you'll see these are ants that are already dead from exhaustion. And I think of that image when I think of a culture untethered to what it was that brought the idea of human dignity, equal human dignity, dignity human rights, equality, justice for the weakness, the people who are out of power instead of oppression. That when you untether it from that, all of a sudden, rights or wrong are eventually going to change. Think about our last 10 years and think about how the notion of right and wrong has really changed just in the last 10 years of our culture. What's right and what's wrong has dramatically changed. Of course, the reality is what's right and what's wrong hasn't changed at all if you believe in rights and wrongs that transcend human pers you know, personal opinion and sentiment. What's right and wrong always stays the same. But what the culture sees as right and wrong has shifted. And it shifts because like these army ants, if we're gonna follow cultural leaders, we're simply gonna shift with the cultural shifts and what's right and wrong is going to shift with it. This is not new. This is not a new phenomenon. 
In fact, when you read the New Testament, you find the Apostle Paul dealing with the exact same argument. He's writing to the Greco-Roman world. He's writing to the world that, that Luke Ferry says had the Greco-Roman view that Christianity eventually supplanted, but it hadn't supplanted it yet. So like when you read his letter like to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, Corinth was an incredibly Greco-Roman city. It was very steeped in Greco-Roman thought. And so they based what they thought was impressive and true and real based upon somebody's oratory skills. Paul wasn't apparently very good at it. But he's talking to them about the gospel's wisdom versus the wisdom of the culture that they're in. And he writes this in the very first chapter. And like, if you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you'll see that it's clearly the most dysfunctional church in the entire New Testament. So he has to start from point A. And here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, those, to, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Let me just real quick say here, remember, saved is not dying and going to heaven. Being saved means being a part of this kingdom of God coming back to earth when Christ returns and there's a resurrection of the body, resurrection of creation. Some will perish from that. Others will be a part of that resurrection and that resurrected world. That's to be saved. That's to be healed. And so that's the narrative. But he says it's that, that, that whole story is foolishness. The message of the cross, when you think about the message of the cross, what it says about if God had to become human and die on the cross for our sins and to break through the power of death and rise from the dead so that we could have a resurrection, what does that say about God? What does that say about us? What does that say about our world? That can be kind of dumb to people. And that word foolishness actually is translated in the Greek word moria. It's where we get our English word moron. And what Paul's saying is that, look, the gospel's always gonna seem, we're gonna seem like morons. It's always going to, we're going to seem ignorant. We're going to seem stupid to a culture that doesn't have the value of the message of the cross. If they don't have the, best, the value of the message of the cross, we're always going to look stupid. We're always going to look like morons. We're always going to look ignorant. But he goes on in verse 22 and he says, but we preach Christ crucified, the King, God crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness. There's that word again moron to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This idea of a stumbling block doesn't mean something you necessarily trip over. It was a euphemism that meant that when you're really offended by something. And what Paul's saying is that the more a culture that doesn't get it here's the message of the cross, they're going to be really offended by it. It's going to offend their cultural idols. It's going to offend their cultural desires. It's going to offend their cultural, assum offend their cultural assumptions. And they're going to think you're a moron. They're going to think you're an idiot. They're going to accuse you of being ignorant. Paul says that was the case 2,000 years ago. I'm saying it's the case 2,000 years later, but there's nothing new. It's not like there's some new enlightenment that's caused a new enlightened culture to suddenly call Christians stupid. They've been doing it for 2,000 years. Here's what I think it is. I think, I think God's wired it in such a way. If, if the essence of sin is pride, we want to be our own God. We want to live for our own glory. If that's the essence of dysfunction, if that's what's caused everything in the human condition to go wrong, and we've had history of Vikings and Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan and all that, if, if, that's, if that's what's caused this dysfunction in this world is pride, ultimately, 
the solution, as Jesus taught, was to humble ourselves and to come to Christ. And if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. And whoever loses their life for Christ will find it. And, and the, so the antithesis of pride is this certain kind of humility that's most displayed in the cross of Christ, God himself dying on the cross. I think God has wired it in such a way that the only way you're going to come to Christ, the only possible way you're going to believe the gospel, he's wired it in such a way that the power and wisdom of God in the gospel hides as ignorance. It puts on a mask and pretends to be ignorance in any culture that prides itself on its own intelligence. You'll never value the message of the cross and if you're embracing the value of your culture that prides itself in your own intelligence. It's going to seem stupid to you. It's not going to be interesting to you. Christians are going to like leap of faith, ignorant idiots. God is, it's almost like he's wired it that way. So that you have to first deal with your pride before you'll humble yourself and come to Christ. And I think what that means is if you're somebody in particular that wants to be respected by and be approved by our secular culture, I think it's going to be really hard for you to, to make it as a Christian. It's going to be super hard to be a Christian. Because if you're going to embrace the message of the cross, there are going to be people you respect that you want to respect you that are going to think you're dumb. It's just built into the system. Now, now we, we want to be people who don't make irrational leaps of faith. We want to be people who have this sense of, of, of we don't want to be unquestioning of traditions. We want to be people who are looking at the evidence and seeing if it makes sense and seeing if what the Bible says is, seems to be true to the reality we know is, is true, is real to the world as we know it. So we want to deal with things honestly and intellectually honestly. But if we're going to embrace the message of the cross, there's going to be a time where it might cost you something. It might, it might cost you professionally because you're going to be listed as among the idiots, the ignorant. It might cost you economically. It might cost you academically. It might cost you socially. It has people, Christians, for 2,000 years. And when that happens, the real question is going to be which foolishness and which wisdom will you live by? Let me pray. Because you came in the person of Jesus and did the miracles you did and died on the cross and rose from the dead, we know it's true that those who humble themselves will be exalted, that we are all created equally in the image of God, that you care about the oppressed and you care about justice for those who are powerless and you care about us treating people with dignity. You care about individual rights. You care about human rights. And that's why the world is even talking about it. Nobody was talking about it before Jesus came. Everybody's talking about it after Jesus came. 
because you are the one who's the source of all right and wrong, and you are the one who cares for every single person, and you are the one who brings human rights and dignity into this narrative. And so we look to you, the message of the cross, as the basis. That's the basis that we can confidently say, love is real, love is better than hate, justice is better than oppression. There is right and wrong, and you've proven it because of the message of the cross, the message of Jesus, the Christ who has come in the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we thank you for that confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and receive God's blessing from Ephesians 1.18? May God open the eyes of your heart so that you may know the hope to which he's called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the message of the cross where the power of God and the wisdom of God are. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great week.